Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are. You're listening to the VIP Jazzwall Report. Ralph Nader once said addiction should never be treated as a crime. It has to be treated as a health problem. We don't send alcoholics to jail in this country, but over 500,000 people are in our jails who are non-violent drug addicts. And in our world today, we often hear of addiction through celebrities because they glorify their dilemmas through publicity. I can't feel sympathetic towards them, especially when they have so much to live for and they're blessed with so much. It just comes across as a cheap publicity stunt. I do, however, relate to real people, and that's what this show aims to do. I'd like to think of our show as reality radio, because we're going to be talking to real people with real issues, asking them real questions, and most importantly, getting real answers. In fact, the star of today's show is the story itself. Our story today is an inspiring one of a young woman's journey into the depths of addiction. She's going to tell us what took her there and how she managed to get out. Her story will grip you in many ways. It'll make you feel fortunate for not having been through what she had to, but at the same time will make you feel vulnerable because she is just like you and me or even someone close to you like a friend or family member. Addiction is one of those human conditions that has no boundaries. So brace yourself for a story of hope through despair, a battle of strength over weakness and a story that's closer to home than you think. Her identity has been concealed to protect her, so I'm going to call her Grace, and you'll understand why I gave her this name towards the end of the show. Welcome to the show, Grace. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, what are you recovering from, and and how long have you been clean? Um, I've been clean and sober for uh, about eight years. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm in recovery from drug addiction, uh, specifically amphetamines and sedatives, as well as uh, alcoholism. And I'm also in recovery from an eating disorder. Right. I want you to help build a picture in my head here. So let's start from the very beginning. Tell me a bit about your background, your parents, your home, what they did. Sure. Um, I grew up uh, up north in a middle class, you know, normal family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had we had good values. My parents stayed together. Um, you know, they they worked a lot. Um, right. And uh, you know, it was pretty normal. It was no different than than any than any other household. Um, what I do remember about myself was just from an early age, feeling uncomfortable in my own skin. You know, what I will say about um, the environment I grew up in is that there was a lot of emphasis placed on physical appearance, a lot of emphasis placed on on looking good. You know. Both in you know, both in you know, emotionally and also physically. So, um, you know, that was something that that was ingrained in me at a young age. But I mean, you know, I would say it was pretty normal. But did you comply with that um, physical appearance aspect of it? You know, I don't think I did. I mean, I you know, I never felt that I measured up. I Why never, not? Um, I was I was a little bit overweight as a child. Um, I think, you know, I did receive messages from my parents that you can always be better. Mm-hmm. You know, you can always be better. That's not enough. If you just did a little more of this or if you just lost a little bit of weight, you'd be beautiful. And I just felt like um, it was never quite enough. I always wanted to try and make it better somehow. And what was generally your first experience with so-called addiction or rather abnormal behavior? Um, I remember I was 
I was very young. I was probably about eight years old, mm. um, and my parents traveled a lot. Um, so I was home alone a lot. We had nannies, and I remember um, feeling lonely and um, sad and, and not being able to tolerate those feelings. And I, uh, I binged on a box of donuts, and I remember going to the fridge, uh, opening the fridge, and there was this box of chocolate-covered donuts, and I just started eating them. And I and I just ate one and then another and then another and it it was an escape. It was a high. It was a rush. The taste of it um, was an escape. And so I you remember, had a sugar rush of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was filling a void. You know, when you think about eating that much, it it makes you feel full when you feel empty. But you know, you come from a middle class background. Both your parents are working. There's not much to want because everything is given to you. Oh, correct. Uh, so it just seems odd that you were still lonely or, or wanting for something. What do you think you were wanting for? You know, that's, that's a good question. I think, you know, I think I, I think I wanted more love and attention. I think... Um, positive attention. Yeah, yeah, positive attention. And I, and I think this just naturally, for whatever reason, I just had this thing about me that I just didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. I was not, never felt content. I just wanted something more. Um, and, and so the first thing I looked to to try and fulfill that was, was food. And your first experience was the, that box of donuts, and then obviously one thing led to another. Absolutely. Did and your I parents remember- notice that you were consuming large amounts of food? Um, I, I hid it. Um, you know, I hid wrappers underneath my bed. I, I snuck food at school, so I hid it from them. I think that, yes, they... I think that they had an idea, you know, I gained weight and they, you know, I remember my mother would, would hide food, you know, in the house so that I wouldn't be able to find it. Um, you know, so they noticed, they never confronted it directly, but kind of in ways tried to keep it from me. But, you know, I always found a way to fulfill that, that need, that desire. So you found food that was hidden? Yes, I did. And then didn't they realize that, you know, the food's missing? So you're obviously on on, on this secret search? Yeah, um, I, I'm sure they did, I, you know, I, but they never, um, they never really confronted me directly about it. You know, they would, they would make comments about my weight. I think, you know, I think as a, as parents, they, they wanted their child to fit the, the normal mold because they didn't want me to have to ever experience pain or teasing or anything like that. But, um, I'm sure they noticed, um, but I don't remember having any, you know, big conversations about it. And, and you know, I, I continued to try and hide it as much as I could. And I was very ashamed of the behavior. So, you know, I... I but that I, was your first experience in experiencing a high. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So let's get to the point where that wasn't enough. And then, obviously, what was your first or your second form of addiction? After food, what happened? Um, I was uh, in eighth grade. I was about 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was at my house with some girlfriends. We were having a sleepover, and um, we had some boys sneak over to the house in the middle of the night, um, and I snuck out and went into the woods behind our house, and they brought with them a, a duffel bag, and it had a six-pack of beer and a bottle of Jack Daniels. Wow. And um, I, we, we started drinking, uh, and you know, I had, I had maybe had sips of alcohol here and there, but I had never really had a drink. Right. And I drank, I remember drinking that first beer and just immediately feeling this sense of 
ease and comfort, feeling relaxed. I remember all of a sudden feeling self-confident. There were boys there. I started. What did you drink? What was your first consumption? It was a beer. It was immediately followed by another beer. Um, immediately followed by by the whiskey. So two beers and half a bottle of Jack Daniels. Correct. Correct. Was your first induction into alcohol. Yeah, and I blacked out the first time I ever drank, and I got very sick. I actually got alcohol poisoning and had to go to the doctor the next day. And your parents were aware, were aware of this? Uh, I told them that I had a stomach bug. <laughs> and, you know, I, I look back and I think that they may have had questions, but they never confronted me about it. But then didn't the doctor say that it's not a stomach bug, it's alcohol? No, he didn't say anything. Um, you know, I went, they gave me a shot of Compazine, mm-hmm. which is an anti-nausea. Um, and, you know, the nausea eventually went away, and we never had another discussion about it. Um, I can't, I look back at that, I can't imagine that I didn't smell like alcohol when I went in, but nobody, nobody confronted me about it. So how did you feel after you were getting your stomach pumped and all that? Um I remember thinking to myself... Because the hangover must have been painful. Oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. Um, but, but, I, but what I took from that was, I, that was an incredible, I can't wait to do it again. I just need to figure out how to do it right next time. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that, that, the feeling of escape that alcohol gave me, um, it rid me of the anxiety, of the insecurity, the low self-esteem... I just thought to myself, this, I need to do this on a regular basis. I just need to figure out how to do it right next time so I don't get sick. And you're only 12 at this point. Yeah, I might have, been, I might have just turned 13. We were in eighth grade, so. Now, what was the second? I mean, how would you do it right the next time? What was going through your mind? Um, you know, continue to seek out alcohol at any opportunity I could on the weekends. You know, I chose friends who were interested in the same thing, raiding our parents' liquor cabinet, mm-hmm. um, you know, dr- like I said, drinking on the weekends. And eventually, of course, you know, I was introduced to other other drugs. Uh, first, first thing was marijuana. And how um, old were you when you tried marijuana? I was also in eighth grade. Um, it was toward the end of my eighth grade year, so so the alcohol exposure, that first experience, was toward the beginning, and then t- I remember it was toward the end of, of eighth grade, and um, a classmate of mine, we used to hang out um, in the town right outside the school, and we went behind a railway station to smoke cigarettes, and he pulled out a joint, um, and I and I took a few hits. Um, and, and how old is this guy? He was in my grade. He was my age. Wow. He was my age, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was the same feeling. It was the escape, the high. It was exciting. It was a little different than the alcohol. Um, and it was just kind of, it, you know, it sparked this excitement of me of what else is there out there that I can take that will change the way I feel like this, that will, it's, it was an escape. Uh, and I just loved the escape. But what were you escaping from? You think, um, what do you think when you look back? What were you escaping from? What was so wrong? I get the weight bit. Right, right. I think it was, I had low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like, you know, I didn't feel as pretty as my friends. I didn't feel good enough. Um, you know, I, I, I was, I just, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but just this constant sense of unease and discomfort. And I think, you know, for whatever reason in my own mind, I put a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect, and I never felt like I measured up. 
Um, I felt socially awkward, you know, around boys. Um, and, and when I would, you know, I think, I think the really, the need to escape came later on, maybe when I, you know, the more things I had done that caused me guilt and shame and lowered my self-esteem, I needed the escape more. Maybe earlier on, it was just, you know, feel, it allowed me to feel good and confident in ways that I hadn't before. Um, but How I, were your grades at this point? They were, they were okay. Um, you know, nothing that would cause concern to somebody, you know. So everything I, looked very ordinary. Absolutely. So when absolutely. you'd get on a high, you'd obviously have to go home. Right. And again, there's no sense of detection there that you're sort of acting a little spaced out or a little different? No, I mean, I'll tell you, um, you know, my parents, they were not in the home a lot. When I would get home, they worked a lot. And I would, you know, when I came home, there might have been a nanny there, but there wasn't anybody that was sniffing me, smelling me, checking my eyes. And I was a very good uh, hider, you know, it, I wanted to protect that experience. So whether it meant spraying myself with perfume, putting Visine in my eyes, coming home and, you know, bypassing, having to talk to anybody, saying goodnight and going right to bed, whatever I had to do to try and manipulate or scheme to hide that, I mean, I certainly tried to do and I think was successful. Now, internally, you felt more confident. You felt uh, obviously on this high. But externally, were you more hyper? Were you more alert? Were you walking faster? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what I looked like externally. It's interesting. I, I think, you know, I think I probably seemed more at ease. Um, I think that, um, you know, I, I probably I did things that I would not normally have done right. if I were sober. It certainly lowered all of my inhibitions and my judgment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, things that I probably would have had severe anxiety about doing sober, I had no problem doing when I was high or drinking. Can you so, give us an example? Um, yeah, I, you know, when, as I got later into my teen years, 13, 14, 15, 16, um, you know, we would, uh, we would hang out with men that were older than us. Mm -hmm. um, and, and men who had, who had more access to drugs and alcohol. Um, and there were, you know, people that we hung out with homes. We went into places that we went with, with, with men, um, that were definitely not safe. Um, and you know, there were situations where, um, you know, I, I had, where I did things that, um, I wouldn't have done had I been sober. So would, are you aware of any one situation that stands out in your mind that shows how dangerously yeah. low you went? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was 16, um, and I, my friends and I obtained fake IDs, um, and we would go to the bars in the area where we lived. Uh, and we met a couple of men there. Um, I was 16. They were probably in their mid-20s mm -hmm. and um, had some drinks. Um, we ended up back in their car because they had marijuana, so we were smoking marijuana in the car. Um, and they drove us to this abandoned building in the area where we lived. Um, and at that point, you know, these these 24, 25-year-old boys were, you know, with these girls, and they, they had an agenda, I think. 
um, you know, sexually. That's, that's, I think, what they were interested in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think as two young girls, I know for myself anyway, you know, I, I went along with it. And we, I remember we, we smoked some marijuana and we got out of the car and, the, you know, went with this guy behind the building. Um, and we started to make out. Um, and, you know, it got to a point where I did not necessarily want to continue. Um, but he was forceful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, he, for, he, he put me in a position where I had to interact with him sexually in a way that I didn't want to, but I was scared of what would have happened had I said no. Um, and I think, you know, being impaired, being drunk, being under the influence, um, led me to a place where, where I went through with it, um, and didn't want to, but was afraid of what might happen if I had said no. It's almost like a rape in a kind of way, sexual interaction without your voluntary consent. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at the time, I didn't categorize it that way, and it wasn't violent. But looking back in retrospect, yes, you know, that those were the kinds of things that happened to me, and those were the kinds of positions I put myself in, right. um, all in an effort to seek out this high, this drink, um, this, you know, this escape and I, and, you know, the, the lifestyle of it, of living on the edge, I guess, was in itself, you know, a high. Well, I can't even imagine your agony and grief at that point, but then you went to college. Mm-hmm. What was that like? When I went to college, um, I went to a, you know, a, a private university, um, and I, my first semester, um, I continued, you know, continued drinking, met some friends that, that, again, you know, I think I always sought out people that did what I did right. that, that could, you know, help facilitate that. Um, and uh, so I continued drinking and smoking marijuana, and I had experimented with some other drugs at that point. But there was one night my freshman year when I was writing a paper, and uh, a boy who lived a few doors down in the dorms, um, he came and knocked on my door. And I had interacted with him a couple times, but I didn't know him well, but he came in to chat. Um, and I told him that I was writing this paper, and it's due tomorrow, and I'm struggling, and I wish I hadn't left it to the last minute. And he said, um, well, I have something that might help you. And I said, well, what's that? <laughs> and um, he gave me a pill. It was, a, it was an Adderall. And uh, I said, okay. And I, and I took it, um, and I fell in love for the first time. Um, Adderall is an amphetamine, mm-hmm. and it's prescribed for ADD and ADHD. And um, I took this this pill, and I remember feeling a high like I had never experienced. Um, I felt happy. I felt euphoric. Uh, my mind was racing. Um, I I wrote my paper in two hours. Um, I had energy. I remember cleaning my entire room after I finished the paper, and I just felt so um, energized. Um, And most importantly, I didn't want to eat because it suppressed my appetite. And, you know, up until this point, I still was struggling with an eating disorder, primarily binging, and and I was overweight. and, And this pill gave me no appetite, which was what I wanted so desperately. 
Um, and as, and after that night, I remember thinking to myself, I don't care what I have to do, but I need to find a way to get myself access to this drug on a regular basis. And how did you manage to do that? Um, I went home uh, for Christmas break. Right. And I told my parents that I thought I had ADD um, and that I wanted to see the psychiatrist. So I went and met with a psychiatrist, um, and I knew exactly what symptoms to tell her. Um, and I and I sat in her office, and she said, "Okay, um, it sounds like you are a you know a good candidate for Adderall." Um, and she actually said to me. Young women usually do really well with Adderall because it also suppresses their appetite. <laughs> mm. And when she said that, it was like, you know, case closed. Um, and she gave me a prescription for Adderall as well as other, she gave me some other amphetamine drugs as well. She gave me Dexedrine and, and Concerta, which is a Ritalin-based drug. And she said, you know, try them all and see which one works best. Um, so, so far in your life, you've had drugs delivered to you, surrounded to you. I mean, at a rate faster than Domino's Pizza. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I was just waiting for it that, you know, it was just a matter of time before it, it came into my life and I was ready to grab it. Did you often have alcohol with yes. the drug intake? Yes, I did. Um, as I, you know, I got a prescription for the Adderall, um, which was very easy to sustain. It's a $10 copay. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, that was easy. And, but the Adderall, it's an amphetamine, um, and I was would be up for days at a time because I'd never took it as prescribed. I took more and more and more because I wanted to feel more and more and more, and I had to be able to bring myself down um, because, you know, after being up for two or three days on an amphetamine like that, um, I would feel jittery and anxious, and I had to sleep, so I would drink. I would drink in order to come down. I would drink whiskey, um, and eventually I did get a prescription for another drug to help me sleep, which was Ambien. So that was my cocktail. I would take Adderall during the day, sometimes for two days at a time, and then I would drink when it was time to come down. I would drink whiskey and take Ambien, and typically I would black out. And in any 24-hour period on a given day, I was never not on something. Had you lost weight by this time? Yeah, uh, my second semester of of college, I went from about a, about 200 pounds down to about 125 pounds. So I lost a lot of weight very fast. I essentially stopped eating. Um, I ate a few bare, bare necessities a day so that I could function. Um, but the fact that I didn't have to eat and the control and power that I felt that gave me was another high. Um, Were your parents happy you'd lost weight finally? Well, I remember going home um, for the first time to visit after I had dropped, you know, probably at least 40 pounds. Um, and I remember walking off the plane and, and my father just being kind of shell-shocked. Um, and my mother was very excited and happy. You know, I think... Um, I had struggled with my weight my whole life, and I remember, I remember being so excited to see her because I just wanted her to see that I had finally done it. I wanted her to see that I finally was good enough and finally was physically what I thought they would always want me to be. So doing the wrong thing felt right. It, 
yeah. Because you finally got the uh, adulation from your parents. They obviously had no clue. Right. Or if they did, they didn't want to acknowledge it. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that I think that on some level, and and you know, they have they have told me this you know, later on down the line, I think that they knew something wasn't right. Um, but I think they were not willing to go there in their mind yet. I think they weren't willing to acknowledge that. Um, uh, I think they were in denial. And, um, you know, so I, I basked the, the attention and, you know, I enjoyed being that thin, pretty person that I had wanted to be for so long. Um, but at the end of the day, when it was time to go to sleep at night, I still had that emptiness inside me. You know, it was it was not. I, re- I remember one. I remember a moment, um, and I was sitting sitting outside on the back porch, and I was at the weight I had always wanted to be. I had long, beautiful hair. I had the you know my nails were perfectly manicured, and I remember thinking to myself, I am so beautiful and perfect, just the way I always wanted to be. And I'm still not happy. Um, and that was such a dark moment for me because I had placed so much on on this physical appearance and this outside perception, thinking it would give me happiness. And realizing that it didn't just kind of sent me more into despair. And, and you know, when you want to talk about escape, um, you know, that was that was something I wanted to escape from and just not have to feel. Well, now you're an almost an adult at this stage in your life. And so getting access to these sort of drugs, did you ever visit one of those, you know, so-called drug dens like you see in the movies? You know, I, I yes, I, I mean, eventually my youth led me to dating somebody who, who dealt cocaine, and I later did start using cocaine, which was just, you know, another stimulant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it took me to places, you know, where there was, you know, people sitting around a coffee table in a house, and it was a house like any other house. It was not, you know, some ominous place. But, but you know, radio is theater of the mind. So sure. give, give me a what it felt like when you walked in. What, what was the room like? What did it smell like? Um, Were people it, all spaced out, lying on the couch? Or what? Yeah, it was more the people I hung out with did, did a lot of cocaine, so it was more people kind of anxious. Um, sitting around on the couch around the coffee table, I remember we pa- we would pass a mirror around. Um, sometimes people would do cocaine off of the key, um, so you'd dip the key into the bag of cocaine and, and sniff it, and just continue to pass the bag around. Um, eventually, I started. The people I hung out with at that point were smoking crack, and it smelled. It's a chemical smell. Um, and I remember I would I would kiss my boyfriend at the time, and his his mouth tasted like aspirin because that's what crack the chemical of it has this taste to it um and you know the the lights the lights would be on and it would just be you know people drinking and taking drugs and and laughing but it was never it was a phony laugh do you know what i mean it was not it was not authentic um and eventually you know as the night would go on um you know, people would get more and more impaired and, you know, people would be passed out on the couch or on the floor. Um, you know, other people would go off into other rooms to do different drugs or to have sex or whatever. Um, you know, I think it was just, again, 
everybody there just thinking like how can we get how can we get more high did you ever do crack i myself never smoked crack i'm sure it would have only been a matter of time had i stayed in that situation but i did smoke meth mm-hmm. um and the the first time i smoked meth i was again in a house and it was just me one female with a bunch of of men and it was that was a a, a turning point for me cuz I had never smoked meth or crack before, and they passed me the pipe, and I took a big hit, and I remember blowing the smoke out and seeing this white cloud in front of me and feeling that rush and then just thinking to myself, like looking around right. and seeing like lines of crystal meth on the table, you know, the, the people I was hanging around with, with, you know, people that hadn't took, taken care of themselves, dressed in clothes, same clothes for three days, and thinking like, where am I? who am I? This is not who I am. How did I get here? It was almost like waking up out of a dream and like looking around and seeing like, oh my gosh. Um, I, I, it was uh, that, I remember that specific night. It was a, it was a wake up call for me. So that was your turning point. Yeah, it certainly was, was, uh, it was not too long after that, that I, that I got sober. I remember that was a scary moment for me. It was, it was a scary moment where I, where I was able to kind of, yes, see that, but in I a like, way, you know, in a way, you've reached downhill, or you're so deep. Mm-hmm. Did you not feel that a little element of helplessness now? Like, what do I do to get out of this? Oh yeah, I definitely felt helplessness. Um, because your parents don't know, and and obviously you might be scared in telling them. Right. You might be scared in knowing that they would be helpless in return because they are panicking. Right. So all you've done is create a whole atmosphere of panic. Right. Uh, what was going through your mind as to how can I now turn this around? Um, I think my mind would would get halfway there, mm-hmm. and then the fear of the unknown. Um, I, I would just use more. Um, you know, the truth is, I didn't get sober until my family finally intervened. Um, you know, I think what that, was at one point where they intervened? When, when did they finally acknowledge their greatest fear? Or what What did you do? Was it a crime or was it some incident that happened? Well, one, one thing that happened is, um, you know, I, I had left college to go live with them for a while. And I went out one night and didn't come home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met someone at a bar and somebody put something in my drink Um and I remember being taken back to a house. It's in and out um, because I was obviously, you know, had was had something put in my drink. But um, and I remember there was a bunch of people there, and I ended up in the bedroom. Um, and them, you know, trying to take me off the bed or do something with me, but I got sick and I started throwing up. So they left me alone. But. I don't remember anything else. I blacked out. And the next morning I woke up and it was 10 in the morning and it was very, it was unlike me to not come home. Um, and I realized that I, I didn't go home and my parents had called the police. They had the police out looking for me. They had called every single hospital in the area. They were panicked. Um, and I went home and I remember walking through that door being so afraid mm-hmm of the look on their faces and I had mascara running down my face and I had obviously been sick. Um, and I think 
for them, it was not long after that that they finally intervened because I think that was a moment for them like, okay, something is really wrong, something they couldn't deny anymore. So then you entered into some sort of a therapy program? Yeah. Um, my family finally uh, had an intervention with me and said, um, you know, we're concerned. They had been supporting me financially. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't doing well in school. And they finally said, unless, you know, you need to get some sort of help or we're not supporting you anymore. Um, and so, yes, I, I ended up entering a treatment program Um at first, I didn't want to go, but something in me knew I had to go. And I think I had, I think underneath it all, I had had enough. And I think I was relieved that somebody had taken that step for me. Um, so I ended up at a treatment center um, where I learned about recovery. Um, and and they have different stages, right? Yes. In, in how they detoxify you. Yes. Um I didn't need a medical detox right? because at the time the substances that I was using didn't require that. Um, but part of the, pro- the treatment program, you know, was, you know, doing a lot of writing, a lot of reflecting. One of the first assignments I had. But you're to in that state. How do you handle um, temptation? Because, you know, I've got enough trouble keeping away from a candy bar. Right. And yet you've sort of faced almost every uh, form of addiction there is. In terms of the chemicals that you've taken, and so how do you how do you get over that temptation? You know, I have to be honest with you. Um, I think a lot of that has. I think that initial when I look back and I look at the fact that I didn't relapse and I didn't use, mm-hmm. I attribute a lot of that to my higher power, what I call God. Um, I think that there was a source of strength there. And I remember the first night when I got to the treatment center, I prayed for the first time in a long time. And I'm not a religious person. Uh, you know, I'm a very spiritual person now. Um, but I just prayed. And, and I honestly believe that that had something to do with it. And I also think when I went to treatment, I went somewhere that was far away from where I had been using. Oh, so you were away from your friends as well? Correct. I was and that away. helped? Absolutely. Um, had I gone to a treatment center that was near where I had been living at the time, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have had enough in me to not say, you know, forget this and walk out the door. But um, I think being far removed from that um, made it less of an option. Um, I also had a lot of support from other recovering addicts and alcoholics in, in that very early phase. A lot of the counselors where I went to treatment were in recovery. Um, you know, the, the support that I received from people who had been through it was very eye-opening to me because I saw people who talked and they had done what I had done and they had been where I had been. And I knew that because the words they said, it resonated with me. And I looked at them and I saw that, that they were different and they seemed happy. And it gave me a little bit of hope that if they had been where I had been and they're okay now, maybe I can be too. So being away from your friends who helped you go downhill was was part of the solution. Uh, Surrounding yourself with people who have been through what you've been through Mm -hmm. and are getting out of it were inspiring for you and definitely your faith in God. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All of those things. Um, You know, I think that that my faith is something that continues to grow and evolve. Um, And in those early stages... 
a lot of the people that I met also had a strong face. Um, and I think that I, I kind of, you know, in, in the, early on, I kind of acted as if. So I kind of did what I saw other people doing, even though I didn't necessarily believe it yet, but mm-hmm. I saw that it was working for them. So the prayer and the, you know, trying to conceptualize what is that higher power for me, um, you know, I, I just had to kind of practice and act my way into thinking. And eventually I started to feel and believe myself, um, you know, that there was something else out there that I could draw on for strength. And talking right. about something else being out there, part of that something else is also your future. Mm-hmm. What ambitions did you have in your life? Or do you have in your life, I mean? Well, <laughs> Back then, you know, if you had asked me that question, it would probably be a lot different than what I'll tell you now. It'll probably be the next high, right? That'll be the ambition. Right. But uh, taking it away from that now. Now, what what are what my ambitions are now? Mm-hmm. Um, oh my gosh! I mean, I, I well, I, I I feel like I have a purpose. Right. Um, you know, I, I I work in the field now, so okay. I part what I do as a as a career is 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 helping other addicts and alcoholics and people with eating disorders get into recovery. And you're married? Um, I am. I'm married, yes. Uh, I'm married to someone else who is also in recovery. You just doubled your trouble. We did. (laughs) (laughs) Does that make things, uh, does it help things or make things more challenging? It both. (laughs) Um, It helps things because we have so much common ground. Mm Mm-hmm. And we both do similar things on a daily basis to take care of ourselves. And I think we both realize, like, how precious our our life is and our life is together. Um, And I know that when I talk about feelings and thoughts that have to do with addiction, I know he understands. Um, But the worst time could be when you're both equally tempted, right? Correct. Um, And I think it's in our marriage, it's so important that both of us are working our own strong recovery programs in order for our marriage to work. Um, And I think, you know, as addicts, as an addict and and an alcoholic, you know, I'm in recovery, but some of those thinking patterns don't always go away. And so when you have two people thinking that way, it can be difficult. Um, Do Do you look at normal people and when they complain about their normal problems, do you guys secretly laugh because you've seen such greater pain in your life? (laughs) Sometimes. um, You know, with my experience, I think everything is relative, so I try not to ever belittle someone else's pain and suffering. But, you know, I do feel like I have a perspective of how bad it really can be. And Well, I'm glad I called you Grace because your answers are very gracious. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Now, if I had a time machine... And I took you back in time to confront yourself and your family. What would you have told your parents in in how to handle you? Gosh, um, looking back, you know, I think as a young girl, um, I would have told my parents, and and you know, believe me, I be- I know my parents did the best they could, and I think if they knew they could have done something better, they would have. I believe that, yes. Um, but I would have told them to. Um, try and foster my self-esteem a little bit more as a young girl Um, instead of putting pressure on, you know, if you just lose 20 pounds, you'll really be pretty, saying you're beautiful just the way you are and you're perfect just the way you are and you're wonderful because you're funny 
and you're smart and you're quirky, not because you physically look perfect. I think having that message as a young girl would have really helped. I think a lot of young women today don't get that message. Um, You know, I think that I would have told them, you know, to act immediately at the first concern. I mean, I think, you know, they, I was their kid. I think they know their kid, but I think it's painful for, for parents to really accept what might be happening, the harsh reality. And I think it's easier sometimes, I think it was easier for my parents to say, you know what, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. It's probably fine when it wasn't. You see, your story hits home so much because you come from a middle-class background. Both your parents are very normal, hardworking people trying to do their best to give you a great uh, childhood, uh, everything you want, whatever toys and dolls you want. Absolutely. Um, So in their world, they're doing the best they could. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But things went so haywire in in, in all of this. Um, What advice would you give to parents? Um. I would tell them to, you know, be involved and don't be afraid to have those difficult conversations and to ask questions and to make, you know, the the role of a parent, to make that relationship open. Um, I think it's so important and I think it would have been really important to me to feel like in those moments of struggle, like I, I could have, I could go to them um and and ask for help without fear of judgment or fear of of getting in trouble, I guess. I'm the father of a 14-year-old boy. Yeah. Now, what should I be looking out for to see if he is an addict or he has uh, seen part of this or, or consumed it? What, what, what can I look out for? Well, I mean, there's always, you know, the sniff test. <laughs> um, what am I going so- to be sniffing? Um, you know, for smoke, marijuana, mm-hmm. alcohol, that sort of thing. Um, but also who, you know, who are they hanging out with? Um, you know, check the story. Um, you know, if I'm going over to sleep at so-and-so's house tonight, like, okay, let me talk to so-and-so's mom just to make sure. And they'll be so annoyed with you for doing that. But it's it's those little things that that can clue you in to what's really going on. Um, the funny you know. thing is, uh, um, when you consumed your alcohol for the first time, the two beers and half a bottle of Jack, mm-hmm. you were actually gone for a sleepover, right. and then you sneaked sure. out. Yes, that's correct. So to a certain extent, I can only monitor up to a certain amount. That's true. That's true. And that's what's so scary. That's it where, is. you know, it, 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 this whole concept of, of looking after your child feels so vulnerable. Right, right. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think, again, it comes back to, I think it's so important to open that line of communication as a parent. So, you know, if the next morning after when I got sick from the first time I drank, Mm. you know, that I could have said, you know, I drank last night and, and, you know, not been afraid of their reaction. You know, I don't know. I think, you know, having a conversation with your child and saying, I just want you to know if anything ever happens, if you've been drinking, if you've tried something, you can always come to me and I won't get mad at you. We'll figure out how to how to get through it. I think- you know, I've been a kid once and that, that never works. Because you go to them and then they're like, what the hell? And then you're like, oh, but I thought you said it'll be okay. And this <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I... I um, a friend of mine said, you know, always kiss your child when you meet them on the forehead because the smell stays in the hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one way. It is. Um, you know, I think, I, th- I know for me, um, I sprayed perfume in my hair. Right. You know, I, it, if, if I wanted to do it, I was going to find a way to do it. Um, and I think, you know, it's important as a parent not to think, well, my kid won't do that. Not my kid. I, you know, and I'm that's kidding. what most parents do, including right. yours. Right. I don't care if your kid is the valedictorian and the top student and the top athlete. They are at risk. Right. Um, now, I believe you have a special talent. I do. You like to sing. I do. And what are you going to sing for us? I'm going to sing Amazing Grace. And that's why I called you Grace. Because I think your story is amazing. I think uh, to our listeners, you're a true American idol. So give it, give it to us. Okay. <clears throat> amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Thank you so much. That really was great. You've got a great talent. Thank you. And Grace, we've come to the end of the show. I just want to say thank you for sharing the story of your life with us. And, you know, you've shown a lot of courage in doing so. And you've been an inspiration to me because what you've had to struggle with in your life makes my problems pale in comparison. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad I had the opportunity to share the story. And on that note, God bless you. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. A special shout-out of thanks goes to my two colleagues, William Sanchez and Rick Buser, for producing the show. I'm very grateful to Robin Piper and Joan Brown from The Turning Point of Tampa for their invaluable input. Ladies, this show would not have been possible without you. And if you guys and gals out there have a story to share with the rest of the world on an anonymous basis, please contact me via Facebook and Twitter. For more fascinating stories, log on to foxnewsradio.com and click on to the VIP Jazzwall Report. Follow me on Twitter at VIP Jazzwall and my Facebook page for more great stories from great people.